1: Hello. This is New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. Today, I'll be speaking with Jesse Rhodes, author of *An Education in Politics: The Origin and Evolution of No Child Left Behind*. I hope that you enjoy this interview today. Welcome, Jesse Rhodes. Jesse, how are you today?
0: I, I'm I'm doing great. Uh, thank on- you so much for uh, for having me on.
1: Wonderful, wonderful. Before we start talking about your really interesting book, in Education and Politics, The Origin and Evolution of No Child Left Behind, maybe we can hear a little bit more about who you are, uh, what your background is, and maybe what your motivation uh, was to write the book.
0: Sure. So uh, I'm I'm Jesse Rhodes. I'm assistant professor uh, in the Department of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst. Uh, I'm a PhD from the University of Virginia and did my undergraduate work at Juniata College. It's a small liberal arts college uh, in central Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And um, I became interested in um, this topic. uh, My interest actually began um, in doing some work with my mentor, Sidney Milkis, at the University of Virginia, on um, George W. Bush and um, his relationship to the Republican Party, and we'd become a little interested in, uh, at that time, No Child Left Behind. And, and we were looking at it through the lens of um, Bush's efforts to uh, kind of expand the Republican Party's ideology and their kind of programmatic commitments uh, so as to expand the reach of um, Republican uh uh, enthusiasm and identification in the public and, ex, you know, extend their their political um, influence. And, you know, when when I got into looking at this a little bit more closely, I realized that that um, interpretation of No Child Left Behind and more broadly of federal involvement in standards testing and accountability, uh, that, that narrative that we had been looking at it really wasn't um the full story and it actually I don't think is the is the best or most interesting part of the story. And so um you know I did, I was doing some background research and I realized that there was this really interesting story that hadn't been told. And so um I I over time realized that that I wanted to tell it. And I, I looked through you know existing work on these policies and I really wasn't satisfied with those as well. And so this kind of put me on a crusade to uh, learn more about these policies and tell the story of the evolution of federal education policymaking that hadn't previously been told.
1: That's wonderful. It's a really, really interesting book, both a public policy book, also a political science book, and, and also tells a really interesting history as well. And so for a book to Accomplish those three things. I think it's really uh, uh, was obviously ambitious at the start, and I think you really carried it out very well. Oh, thank you. You write in the introduction to the book about this idea of institutionally bounded entrepreneurship. I wonder if you could define this term for us, for those that haven't read the book, and and tell us which streams of the literature it's built upon, and and what you were trying to bring together. This is I don't know if this is exactly a term you coined, sure. but it's certainly important. Piece of of how you situate the the narrative that you then tell.
0: Well, that's right. Um, and so, uh, you know, as I'm sure you know, um, as uh, as someone who um, is a, a UVA PhD and someone who is very uh, interested in politics and history, one of the things that 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 scholars in studying American political development have really been wrestling with in recent years is the development and evolution of political institutions. Um, And I use institutions broadly both to mean the formal institutions of government, but also um, large scale public policies that structure um, or govern um, important social relations. And uh, one of the difficulties in the research on the uh, development and evolution of uh, institutions is that it's really been kind of divided between two, I think, different schools with, with very different approaches and epistemological foundations. So on the one hand, you've got um, scholars who have really emphasized um, the creative role of political entrepreneurs. And so this goes back, you know, to folks like Nelson Pulsby and John Kingdon. And then, of course, there. are are much more recent practitioners like Daniel Carpenter, um, Adam Scheingate, who really emphasized that, these, that political entrepreneurs can play a formative role in forging institutions by developing new ideas, by bringing together diverse groups into new coalitions, and by brokering compromises to get these innovations through the policy process. Um, and this approach, you know, I, I, I'm a, a big fan, a big proponent. And yet at the same time, you know, I realize and I think that that, that many people have realized that one of the limits of this approach is that it um, is very voluntaristic. And so there are issues of trying to theorize about entrepreneurs. So who are these people? Why are they smarter or, or more successful than everyone else? What is it about them? And so... Um, Another group of scholars who's interested in institutional development um, have really focused on the constraints that structures of government or uh, existing political political commitments impose on political change. Um, So this is, you know, the, the scholarship on path dependence, right, where it's very difficult to change. Uh, uh, public policies or governing institutions once they're in place because um, the cost of doing so is so high. And, you know, this is great uh, for for understanding stability, but it doesn't do a great job in explaining political change. And so um, what my book tries to do um, and what the concept of institutionally bounded entrepreneurship tries to do is take some of the insights from both of these schools and combine them in a way that helps us understand both change and continuity um, and, and I think kind of very broadly what what my approach suggests is that um, entrepreneurs act within constraints and that they can make uh, important changes to the public policy making process or more broadly to institutions, but in so doing. They are um, constantly hemmed in or constrained by uh, existing commitments, and that the choices that they have to make end up uh, affecting the the new reforms that they create that is that ultimately, even when entrepreneurs make uh, important changes in government institutions or public policies. Those changes carry with them some of the legacies from the past, and that legacy affects uh, the, the, the ongoing performance of the new institution or policy.
1: So, in in uh, developing this this interesting theory, you you lay out uh, towards the beginning of the book, must be in chapter one or so, mm-hmm. uh, five elements of the theory. You sort of walk through, and right. in one of them, you wrote, and I think it was page fifteen. Indeed. Public ambivalence about federal involvement in education reinforced the drift toward an incremental strategy that built on previous federal investments in education. I wonder what you mean by this. This is not uh, sort of the common take. I wonder what what uh, how you came to this sure. and what is this challenge about our common notions of federal education investments?
0: Okay, well, um, so I think uh it, it, what i wrote there and, and part of what the book is reacting to is this um set of understandings following enactment of no child left behind that this was really um a radical shift in federal education policy making that the kind of overarching orientation of that policy had changed from a focus on providing Um, additional resources to schools serving concentrations of disadvantaged students to a new policy that emphasized um, higher standards for all students, um, more frequent standardized testing for all students, and then a regime of sanctions for schools in which students had not been reaching achievement goals. So so this kind of broad shift in its orientation. And then, of course, along with that, um, this focus to move toward a much more prescriptive um, emphasis in federal education policymaking that um, historically understood that the components of No Child Left Behind were much more specific with regard to um, the production of education than they'd once been. And, The point of the the book was that there's something to that but it misses the extent to which these new reforms build on previous federal commitments in education and how the fact that they build on those previous federal commitments um, profoundly influences how the new reforms operate in practice. So For example, um, No Child Left Behind creates this new um, ostensibly objective accountability scheme, right? So on paper, it looks like uh, if your school doesn't make adequate yearly progress, then it faces this increasing regime of sanctions. But importantly, uh, this policy is built on the, the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which devolves a lot of responsibility to state and local governments, and No Child Left Behind does the same thing. So who has the responsibility to define what adequate yearly progress is? Um, Ultimately, the states, through their construction of um, standards and testing. Who implements or not uh, accountability measures? State and local governments. And so the policy on its face appears to be centralizing and um, a major departure, but its um, underlying assumptions and legal uh, structures are uh, much akin to these earlier public policies which were highly decentralized in their implementation.
1: Now- one of the really interesting things that I think you do in the in the book is 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 go back in time and, and talk about some of the roots of, of No Child Left Behind. And you write as as many people before you have about the the famous, infamous, well known report, A Nation at Risk. Right. And but your take is that it's not nearly as important as maybe it's gotten credit. Yeah. Um. I wonder if you could talk about this this point. I may have gotten it right or wrong. But uh, this 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 report, nature at risk, mm-hmm. its relative importance, and what was going on in the 1980s? What was the environment? You you kind of lay out very nicely in on one of the tables who a couple of the the right. key camps are and the important players in each one of those camps. Um, maybe you can take us back to the 1980s and and tell us about that time period. So
0: that's right, and and um, so I think that the kind of conventional wisdom about the period and about a nation at risk is something like this, that uh, the 1980 election brought in Ronald Reagan and more broadly the kind of conservative uh, movement to power in national politics. And their orientation was to, um, you know, retrench a lot of the commitments of the new deal and in education to, Really devolve power to states and localities and to you know provide federal assistance for um, tuition tax credits and to promote um, private school choice and so forth, and that um, within that context, uh, a nation at risk um, signaled a more conservative orientation in education. In so far that it put the emphasis much more on academic achievement and accountability for performance than on um, equity in resources and continued efforts at um, school integration, right? Which which many liberals had supported in the 1960s and 1970s. And I think that the problem with that approach is twofold. So the first, the first problem with it is that, uh, it tends to overestimate the importance of a nation at risk as a document. So the kind of conventional narrative is that a nation at risk galvanized this school reform movement that was headed by conservatives and, you know, led to more or less, uh, marching down the path to no child left behind and, and some of the policies that we have today. Um, And one thing that I show in the book is that, in fact, there was a diverse um, school reform movement that included important segments of the civil rights movement that was in action and developing ideas and organizational capacity far in advance of the publication of A Nation at Risk, Um, and that uh far from being kind of the the impetus to um further school reforms it really um in some ways reflected a um consensus that was emerging not just on the right um or even partic- primarily on the right but but more broadly and encompassing um both business leaders um, and and to a significant and, and previously unappreciated degree civil rights leaders as well. Um, and then secondly, you know, there's a real irony that um, in interpreting a nation at risk as being a product of um, Reaganism or conservatism, it ignores the fact that a nation at risk didn't say anything about Reagan's education agenda to that point, um, that, that Reagan's early education agenda was all about Uh, decentralizing control and um, uh, school choice and and tuition tax credits and vouchers and so forth in a nation at risk, um, in some ways piggybacking on this earlier activism of business leaders and civil rights groups uh, and state governors and and, uh, policy intellectuals was about drawing attention to the national problem of education And it's implicitly suggesting that the federal government needed to get more involved. Um, And, of course, in retrospect, we know that's what happened, um, that Reagan's agenda, uh, as he articulated, uh, uh, has had basically no resonance uh, in education policymaking over the last 30 years. And and to the contrary, the federal government has become only more involved, both in terms of um, regulatory policymaking, but also in terms of providing more money. Uh, And so I think that it's really important to um, to to underscore uh, that surprising aspect of the development of education and to put a nation at risk risk in that context.
1: Now, you sort of you do a very good job of describing this educational excellence network and the emergence of of the excellence movement. Right. Um, And but in chapter two, you also describe the reaction of the two major Teacher unions, mm-hmm. professional unions, the AFT and NEA. I wonder if you could describe how each of them dealt with the excellence movement. They did it differently. I wonder if you could just you know briefly talk right. about AFT and NEA and, and how they came at this um, in their own way.
0: So, so that's
1: right. Um,
0: and you know, I think it's important to um, uh, distinguish between their um, strategic effect- effectiveness. And approach and and their substantive approaches, because I think that over the long run the um, American Federation of Teachers and the National Education Association have actually had um, fairly similar approaches um, to to dealing with the rise of this this kind of excellence in, in education theme and increasing advocacy of of standard testing and accountability that that neither of these organizations have been at the forefront of that movement. And and in fact, they've, you know, resisted uh, in significant part, um, I think, because they really have had questions about um, the... Uh, pedagogical and educational efficacy of these policies, but then, of course, also much more you know, self-interestedly that, that they're worried about the implications for their members in terms of what, how these policies are going to affect schools and, and the autonomy of teachers and so forth. Um, but in terms of their, their politics, I mean, one thing that has differentiated them is that the American Federation of Teachers, I think over time, has been more... Um, Tactically sophisticated in terms of presenting its um, criticism, and in picking the battles, that has been much more um, consistently and forthrightly opposed to many of these reforms, and much more um strident in its uh, critiques of uh, standards testing and accountability reform. so I think that in significant part it's it's more a matter of um, their tactical approach um and that could I think in significant part stem from the fact that the national education association um, is is both much larger and historically has been um, more decentralized in its organizational Structure, So it's much more responsive to um, the rank and file, whereas uh, at least um, through the 1980s into the 1990s up to Albert Schenker's death, the American Federa- Federation of Teachers had a much more um, uh, hierarchical organizational form that allowed the leadership to be more um, uh, active in uh, determining the organization's position, and so they had, I think, a little bit more leeway to be tactical.
1: Yeah, that's that's really interesting. One of, one of my first bosses was Mary Futrell uh, when she when she, shortly after she left NEA and, and came to George Washington University, and that that I think does a pretty good job of describing her, her uh, work in the NEA, but also her work once she left the NEA in terms of her attitude towards organizations. It, Bill Clinton appears in chapter four right. in a in a pretty major way in the context of Goals 2000, and uh, so the chapter describes a lot of his work, but I thought one of the very interesting things uh, w- is that you talked about the extent to which liberals were shut out of this policy development. Why was it that, that during this, that we're talking about, say, about 10 years later mm-hmm. from the, 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 the Nation at Risk time period, but why were they shut out of the development of Goals 2000?
0: Right. Um, So in answering this question, I want to be sure just for listeners who who maybe haven't read the book um, to uh, differentiate in in terms of the way that I use the terms in the book. So
1: um,
0: in the book, I I refer to a group of uh, uh, activists who I think are liberals. Um, I I refer to them as civil rights entrepreneurs. And what... um, really differentiates them from this other group of liberals that I'm going to talk about is that they ultimately were pretty strong proponents throughout of standards testing and accountability reforms. In fact, in this chapter on, on uh, the Clinton presidency, one of my main themes is that these civil rights entrepreneurs developed the blueprint that became um, Bill Clinton's major education reform and that in many ways anticipated No Child Left Behind. Now, on the other hand, there was another group um, that I call educational liberals, and this group uh, uh, was comprised of individuals and groups who took a more kind of traditional liberal stance on educational matters. That is that the main problems with education were um, primarily in terms of lack of access to resources in schools serving concentrations of disadvantaged students. And so, what educational liberals wanted to do was dramatically increase federal investment in schooling um, and to pick up a much larger portion of the tab so that the resources available to schools serving disadvantaged students would would be much greater. So um, during the Clinton administration, um, as I show, um, Clinton was very sympathetic to the civil rights entrepreneurs um, and their view that standards testing and accountability policies would actually help disadvantaged students by um, ensuring that the schools serving those students were accountable. Um, Civil rights entrepreneurs were worried that in the absence of accountability that schools had few incentives to um, be concerned about how vulnerable student groups were doing right that that in the absence of external pressure that the the uh, tendency was for schools serving disadvantaged students to focus primarily on you know middle class relatively well to do students and and to ignore the students who Um, politically were easier to ignore. And so civil rights entrepreneurs believed that accountability reforms would force them to pay attention to these students. Now, I think during the Clinton administration, um, Clinton became um, sympathetic to this approach for a couple of reasons. Um, First of all, I think he realized that the traditional educational liberal approach um, was in the context that he was facing a non-starter, right? That that you needed extremely strong support, um, uh, including probably supermajority support in the Senate, which he didn't have to enact uh, major increases in federal education spending. But then also, I think substantively, um, he had uh, become concerned about the sufficiency of traditional educational liberal solutions. That is that, um, we 'd known that you know starting in the late 1980s and into the 1990s that um, conventional approaches were not apparently producing gains in in student achievement, especially among disadvantaged students, and that he uh, uh, hoped or believed that combining um, resources with um, greater emphasis on standards and accountability for performance would lead to, to greater achievement gains. Uh, this was a big surprise to educational liberals um, in Congress, in particular, that that many Democrats had, you know, believed that the um, uh, 1980s and the early 1990s during the Reagan and first Bush presidency were kind of the you know the period in the desert, and that you know with Clinton's return they would go back to the way things had been in the 70s. And um, Clinton didn't do that, and that was a that was a big surprise.
1: Yeah, another part of the Clinton legacy that is that is so counter to some of the recollections we have, however many years later. Um, one of the other surprises, and this sort of takes us on towards the the end of the book, and uh, maybe we don't have to actually cover the, the the passage of No Child Left Behind. That's sort of the the, um, the the middle of the book, but but let's sort of take us up through the more recent period, which is you talk about a little bit in chapter six and one of the things you you say towards the end of the book is um, this affinity begins with Obama's Secretary of Education Arne Duncan yeah. who in many ways embodies the tactical alliance between business entrepreneurs and civil rights entrepreneurs described throughout this book how does Duncan represent the conclusion of this book for you why is he such a sort of important feature that that brings both the book, and also brings us up to, in many ways, our current time period, given that he's still serving in the position.
0: That's right. So um, one, one of the big themes in the book is that um, the reason why federal standards, testing, and accountability policies have been politically successful uh, in terms of their, their continuity on the federal agenda and their realization in a series of federal laws and regulations and so forth is because... Um, these the suite of policies has become a convergence point for, on the one hand, the civil rights entrepreneurs that, that I described, and then on the other hand, for um, uh, organizations representing um, major corporations. And so, so, business leaders have been strong proponents of these policies. I think, in significant part, because they viewed them as ways of, as a means for strengthening. Um the kind of skills of 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 entry level employees and of um American uh workers in general, so this kind of human capital approach to economic development and what 's interesting is i did I did some research on arnie duncan's background and and he in some ways really kind of embodies this synthesis um, so on the one hand uh Duncan grew up uh, uh in Chicago. And as a young man, um, he was very involved in the community, and, and his mother, in fact, ran a, uh, a children's center, a youth center for um, historically disadvantaged children, um, vulnerable children. And so, from a young age, he had his his life, his career had been informed by this this realization of the challenges facing vulnerable um, um, children and. You know I think very much informed by the view that that um, uh, fortunate people and government government had an obligation to um, do what needed to be done to um, you know as an adult um one of duncan's first um this is after his basketball career one of his first uh, uh, positions was working for um, a private equity firm. But in a capacity of managing its uh, educational offerings to um, disadvantaged students, so he he organized and, and helped manage Aerial Academy, um, which was a um, a kind of subsidiary of Aerial Investments, and so they 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 did um, educational programming for disadvantaged students. And then after that, he moved to. Um, he succeeded Paul Ballas as the CEO of Chicago skill, uh, schools and was a big proponent of standards testing and accountability policies there. And so you can kind of see that, that he uh, uh, had these interesting experiences that melded, on the one hand, um, kind of civil rights experiences and a, a deep concern with the disadvantage with, with these more um, corporate and managerial experiences. And that's what I thought was very interesting
1: about him. Yeah, it was uh, the description of Varney Duncan, the way in which you're able to capture some of these personalities and the importance of these individuals and the institutions that they created and the institutions that those that they then dealt with, I think makes the book a real contribution. Uh, Jesse, thank you very much for your time. Well, thank
0: you. This has really been uh, a fantastic opportunity, and so I'm, I'm very pleased to have had the chance to speak with you.
1: Yeah, and Education and Politics, The Origins and Evolution of No Child Left Behind was published this year by Cornell University Press. It's available at their website, I'm sure on Amazon. It's a book that I would strongly recommend for anyone, both in education policy but also in political science in general. Jesse, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you.